Welcome, everybody, to today's A-side of the Dead Pundit Society. I am your host, as always, Adam Proctor. And joining us today is a very special guest. Uh, she, As you will very soon find out, her ideas, her theories, her strategies are incredibly formative to the overall mission of this podcast and what we try to bring to the table to a kind of left socialist uh, strategic orientation. Joining us today is founder, editor of Red Pepper, fellow of Transnational Institute, author of many books, including her latest, A New Politics from the Left, Hillary Wainwright. Hi, Adam. I'm really, I'm really happy to be joining you and to be joining all your listeners. So as I mentioned in the intro, that nice uh, extended intro, you are the founder and lead editor of Red Pepper. That is a publication that comes out of the UK. It's something that I think would be incredibly interesting to the bulk of my audience, and yet it's it's largely unknown, being that we are, uh, you know, uh, parochial Americans over here on this side of the sea. Uh, tell us a little bit about Red Pepper and uh, where that comes from and what kind of work you, you guys uh, try to contribute to. Yeah, and I, I, I mean, I've, we've got lots of good relations with activists in the U.S., so we don't see you all as parochial on the contrary. Um, <laughs> during the campaign for Jeremy Corbyn's election, I had several people from the Sanders campaign staying in my house. So I feel a kind of close connection. Uh, and also Excellent. with many left, very committed left academics across the US. Anyway, so Red Pepper, it came out of a feeling of frustration um, towards the end of the conservative regime in the late 90s. And we just felt there was no real voice for the left, that the Labour Party was increasingly moving to the right and trying to basically exterminate the left. I mean, almost that vicious. And we have a very undemocratic electoral system. So there was no space for any kind of left, independent left party. You know, the Greens were were popular, but they could never get more than one MP. So we thought, well, OK, we can't get a political voice, a political party, MPs. I mean, they're always a minority, including Jeremy Corbyn, you know, who who you know, plugged away, who were very committed to grassroots campaigns, who who were immensely principled and immensely determined. But somehow that was all seen as very marginal. So we thought, let's create a magazine, a, a, a publication that really speaks to a wide part of the population. It looks good. So, you know, you, it's available in shops. It's something you feel you can show to your auntie or your granny you know it's not sort of it doesn't look like a, a a kind of downbeat left publication it's got a confidence it's got a brilliant design and it's got really good writers who also are edited very well by a very professional editorial team i mean it's it's based on mainly voluntary labor we're trying to change that by paying something particularly to people who are totally precarious so we're kind of, we're not, um, you know, we're not in the lap of luxury. We're not, we don't have lots of staff and big offices. We're, we're very itinerant and dispersed and based on the same material realities as the movement. So we see ourselves as very much part of the movement and a resource for the movements, but also a space where activists can stand back and reflect and think strategically and draw on the work and the research of intellectuals and academics who are committed to the left internationally. So we see ourselves as internationalists. We've always 
had writers from the rest of Europe, from the US, from South Africa, from Latin America. So we come out monthly, fortnight, um, twice, every two months rather, and now quarterly. So we're quite a chunky magazine. And then we've got a very good and growing website presence. So people can look us up on www.redpepper.org.uk and make sure you have the .org.uk because there's a, a pornographic Ugandan newspaper called Red Pepper. So just don't <laughs> muddle us up right? with that. <laughs> Is that right? That's unfortunate. I'll, I'll include the link, uh, the accurate link in the show notes for people to check out there. Yes. And also I should say that we're, we're very influenced by feminism. I mean, my my political background comes very centrally from being part of the women's movement in the 70s. And that's reflected in both my generation of people involved in Red Pepper and a growing generation of young women. Right, right. A lot, lot of really great writing there. And again, I'm, I'm hoping uh, to to be much more integrated with the work that comes out of that magazine in the near future and have some of the contributors on the show. Yeah, I hope so. Adam. A lot of really brilliant mm. stuff. Mm. And, I, you know, again, you know, maybe I'm a little too harsh on, on, on my own left here in the United States, but I, I really do believe that we could benefit a lot from a, the certain, this kind of sophistication and the seriousness and the nuance that, and the kind of historical rootedness that uh, many UK left publications possess that I think is uh, a little bit lacking here in the US, being that we're a little further behind on the learning curve in some senses, you might say here in, on, on the US left, uh, being, being very dominated, especially lately by millennials. Uh, we have a lot to learn from, from your generation. And speaking of your generation, I've had many on the, the podcast, many of whom uh, you would consider friends and comrades and colleagues, the likes of Leo Panich and Sam Gendon uh, in particular. And I like to dig in to the, the personal biography at this point in the show. People who are of your generation who have a rich history to share with, like I said, my primarily millennial and Gen X uh, audience. I have a, a number of other generations represented in, in there as well. Uh, but uh, talk to us a little bit about your political history. Uh, how were you radicalized? You, you've already mentioned your, uh, your activity in the women's movement in the 1970s, but give us a, a little quick biographical sketch, if you don't mind, just to get started. Well, I suppose um, you know, putting myself in the context of a generation, and I, I do, I do see myself in that way as part of a, a kind of collect loose network and collective. And I suppose what formed this was was that was sixty eight was the movement of sixty eight. So I was, I was actually a young liberal at that time, um, but but radicalized by the experience of sixty eight, by the the inadequacy of Parliament to to confront the anti-democratic forces of finance of the US government over Vietnam, uh, and also influenced by the, the sense of possibility that the movement in France opened up. You know, we were in, I was in uh, the University of Oxford, and I remember we were challenging the disciplinary system there. And at the same time, you know, the, the movement in France was, was challenging the de Gaulle government. And we read a real sense that we could bring down, not the government so much, but the authorities. So it was that sense of, of agency that we learnt in 68, that we could be the agents of social change, not just through entering the political parties and becoming MPs and all that, 
not just climbing the greasy pole of politics, but by building what we called extra parliamentary power, you know, not in any one place, but linking power in the universities with power in the workplace, power in communities. So we had this very strong, at that time, sense of agency, which has kind of remained with that generation. I mean, we've had to develop more long-term strategies, more sort of a revolutionary gradualism, some of us would call it. Or at least, particularly, I suppose, I'd sum it up by the notion of power as transformative capacity. So it's not just power through gaining government and using the power of the legislature to to impose change, but power that comes from below, from that comes from the what we I call the transformative capacity of ordinary people. And that's to do with both acting to refuse the the current oppressive relationships of which we're part of, we're complicit, unless we refuse. You know, so women the women's movement in a way, it began by women saying, well actually, you know, we want change, but we can't wait for legislation. We can't wait for an equal pay act. We must take action now in our factories in our relationships, you know, we must develop our own power to to change both personal relations with men, relations with the state, you know, demanding, pushing for the health service to take our understandings of our own bodies seriously, our relationship to the education system, and so on. So that that period was crucial, the 60s leading into the 70s and the women's movement. And then I always had this sense that that change would require some change in the economy, again, coming from the knowledge and capacity of working people on whom the existing system depends. You know, if, if workers refuse to be exploited, if they, well, when they go on strike, you know, they stop the system briefly. And the problem is how to move from that defensive power to some kind of alternative, transformative power. So I got quite involved when I left university with um, with shop stewards, that's workplace leaders in the engineering industry, and went to Tyneside, in, um, that's Newcastle-on-Tyne, up in the north of England, where the big shipyards and heavy engineering was. And I worked with the shop stewards movement there to gain some kind of control over the investment decisions of their companies to stop closures to convert, in some cases, their their production systems, which were geared to producing military um, armory, tanks, missiles, you know, to convert those those that capacity, that machinery, that um, intelligence, you know, towards what we called or what they called socially useful right, products, right. you know, environmentally environmental products, health products. So then I got involved. With Tony Benn and and the labor the labor left who who um, was supporting those shop stewards right and so Tony Benn at the time was in, was in charge they had placed him in charge of industrial policy in the UK as a kind of way of uh, almost kind of marginalizing him in a sense they thought they could place him is is this correct it's kind of a funny little story where they thought they could kind of stick him in the industrial uh, policy uh, sector and he would be sort of uh, you know, neutralized. That that his uh, troublemaking wouldn't uh, you know <laughs> uh, challenge <laughs> the Labour Party leadership uh, in government uh, too too severely or embarrass them in any way. But there he he went about 
uh, at least for a time, radically revolutionizing the industrial yeah. policy of the UK. And so this is a, a part of that. Very interesting. Yes. Yeah, no, I mean, I wouldn't say that he was marginalised at that point. I think it was more that actually that Labour government came to, to office, was elected on the back of a a, a strong workers' movement, the miners' mm, strike okay. against Edward Heath, the Conservative right. minister, who called the election on the basis of who runs Britain. You know, do we, Parliament, the government run yeah. Britain, or do the reunions? And actually, he lost. So the, the Very Cameron-esque there, sort of overplayed his uh, his strength yes. there, or over uh, overestimated his strength. Yeah, yes, yeah, and particularly overestimated his strength vis-a-vis the Labour movement. So in a way, when Labour came to power, the left and the Labour movement was quite strong. So they were in a position to 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 demand that Tony Benn be in the Department of Industry. So initially, he he began in that department with quite a wind behind him. And it was only midway when the business sector complained and put pressure on Harold Wilson, who was a very centrist kind of prime minister. And then Wilson got rid of Tony Benn and moved him to energy, which at that time was a more marginal sort of ministry. Uh, So Benn was effectively marginalised and defeated. But nevertheless, he'd had an impact. He'd shown that a a radical Labour government can carry out its policies by siding with working class people, with shop floor trade unions. And then we, we many of us, learnt from that example and a particular group of Labour Party people in London picked it up and they had the chance to, to win an election to govern London. Um, that was through the Greater London Council, which Mrs Thatcher later abolished. So maybe it's not very well known. but. Um, for a period, it was a very radical government led by by Ken Livingstone, you know, governing London in a new way and trying to implement in a way what what Ben couldn't implement at a national mm. level. So in that respect, uh, the, Ken Livingstone uh, planned this sort of GLC takeover, if you will, started beginning in uh, 1979, if I'm not mistaken, to try to radically democratize this Greater London Council to to implement some of the strategies that you just mentioned of this kind of transformative uh, power capacity that you, that we're talking about, we're going to talk about much more explicitly that you write about in your latest book. Uh, tell us about yeah. your experience in the GLC and how the uh, the failures and the successes, most primarily the successes, of course, the failures came from uh, from without, right? The the, the success of the sort of uh, the, what we now sort of rationalize in this po- post hoc way, the neoliberal movement uh, of, of, of Thatcher and Reagan in, across the Western world sort of wiped out those revolutionary potentials. You saw a very similar phenomenon in the, in the United States. But tell us uh, in the heyday of the GLC, what was that all about? What, what was the kind of, uh, what was the spirit of the moment? Well, I mean, we, I was, my job was to found, um, the popular planning, what we call the popular planning unit, which sounds very, you know, optimistic. And it was because we had considerable resources plus a very confident sort of um, trade union and, and social movement scene in London. And the idea of the popular planning unit was precisely to, in a way, do the kind of things that Tony Benn was wanting to do, which is to to open up the resources of the state to support communities and workers that develop their own plans 
to either, in the case of communities, sometimes to fight property development, to fight big speculators that were trying to take over inner city parts of London. We got involved in working with local people in the Docklands to fight the building of an airport in their locality, which would not provide them with any decent jobs, provide noise and, and disruption. But basically, Mrs Thatcher had eliminated all local planning powers. So the GLC had no official power uh, and the local council had no power. And she created instead a development company. So she completely marketized this very valuable land. And our only power was the, the power of local people. So we worked with them, building on their resistance, you know, on, on the basis that where there's resistance, there's also some belief in an alternative as an alternative is possible. And so we supported them in creating what they called a people's plan centre. And then then they developed with our support an, a people's plan for the Royal Docks, which then acted as a, a bargaining weapon against the airport. It didn't, we didn't succeed, but we had an impact. And it did lead to some new small industries and co-ops in the area. So they weren't completely dependent on the airport. And it led to the inspector of the inquiry into the airport, you know, putting heavier restrictions on its noise levels and and so on. So that was one example. And in other examples, we supported workers developing their own plans for factories that might otherwise have been closed. And then these were invested in by the GLC's investment board, the Greater London Investment Board. So they were they were exciting times, and I mean potentially could have been built on by a national Labour government. But by this time, the Labour Party nationally was moving steadily to the right, and and they were they were quite hostile to the GLC. So I, this is a little off the cuff, and apologies for sort of uh, thrusting this on you here without uh, giving it being able to give it a whole lot of thought. But I'm curious, you know what. It almost seems to me, you know, I've, I've thought quite a lot about this moment in the late 60s and, and into the 70s. And, and one of a, a previous guests of the show, Adolph Reed Jr., sort of said, you know, being a veteran of the 1970s and a militant and a socialist, it's almost like we didn't know that it was the 19, late, late 60s, uh, 1970s until it was over. And when, when he meant it was over, he's talking about PATCO. He's talking about this neoliberal clampdown, this this kind of the way we sort of, uh, you know, like I said, we sort of encapsulate that that period, uh, late seventies, uh, you know, stagflation and, and and the the breaking the back of labor and and the, the sweeping of in the conservative governments um, across the Western world, and and in a sense that you know really kind of you think about being overtaken, overcome by events. And being sort of a place on your back foot in that in that sense, and it seems to me this activity that was happening in the GLC in that moment, if it only had a decade to to really to to really get its gain some momentum prior to the challenges it would face by the Thatcher government, it might have had a little bit more resilience in the face of what were some very revolutionary transformations that were that would have been required to stave off that neoliberal onslaught. And it seems that the movements both in the US and the UK, they just weren't quite ready yet. Was that the sense that you have uh, had back then? Well, uh, I think looking back, we can see that a lot was happening, as it were, 
behind our back, you know, that the whole financialization that led that underpinned neoliberalism was happening without us really being fully aware of it or monitoring it. I mean, we were aware of the growth of corporate power and a lot of um, trade union organizations developed strong international committees, you know, and and networks of solidarity. But we hadn't really come to grips with what it would mean in terms of national politics. Um, And so I think it was not just a problem of us not being ready, but us not really thinking through what it would mean politically at the level of the parties. And the parties, meanwhile, the Labour Party, you know, I'm thinking about particularly, was kind of being sucked to the left, to the right, partly by this kind of corporate-led globalisation and this idea that there was no alternative. So people like Gordon Brown, who had been at one point quite left-wing and quite committed to workers' control and so on, I think he just felt that nothing was possible, that globalisation, corporate-led globalisation was so overwhelming that 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 the Labour Party simply needed to ameliorate its consequences. And so we, we, we didn't have a political voice other than, I mean, the GLC was a local political voice, but obviously it couldn't it couldn't really be sustainable without a national national support. I mean, it had it's created an alliance of other local authorities, but that wasn't really strong enough in the face of Thatcher's, you know, clear determination and and sort of confidence that it could destroy us. And that's where you get this kind of new synthesis, this new common sense emerging. You know, in the the sort of proto new labor movement in the throughout the eighties, wherein you know the the end result, you've got Tony Giddens proclaiming that this kind of globalization is the arc of progress, and to stand against it is to stand against the inevitable. It's to be uh, backwards and reactionary rather than forward looking. And the, and then you have Tony Blair with his you know the kind of 1990s era charisma, which fortunately doesn't play any longer these days. Fortunately, he now looks completely out of touch. But in the 90s, he was quite a charismatic kind of figure for that for the kind of zeitgeist of that moment. And he was able to look uh, us in the eye and say, you know, this is this is the future, and we need to accommodate ourselves to it. And it's yeah, yeah, it's really this is fascinating stuff. Putting the pieces yes. together here. Yeah, I mean, I'm not I, personally. I never found Tony Blair charismatic, but. <laughs> I mean, I, I think um, I think that um, in a way it was this sense that of defeat, you know, that in a way people like Giddens and then Tony Blair accommodated to. I mean, yeah. that they. I, I mean, obviously Giddens had a bit more of a uh, history in the in the left theoretically, and I'm in a way I'm a bit surprised that he didn't see that the underlying structures as a sociologist. Blair, I mean, never was on the left and was a sort of political opportunist. So he, he, I mean, he benefited from people's despair. I suppose I've always seen it as really this feeling amongst the members of the party that they didn't seem to be able to win elections, and so they almost, you know, in it, having thrown up their hands in despair, almost handed it over to Blair and Mandelson, almost on the basis, well, if you can win an election, then, you know, you go for it. Almost a bit like people who are facing a separation that they can't, you know, cope with. 
they sort of hand it over to the lawyers, to the technical people to sort out. And in a way, the Labour Party sort of handed over its leadership to win the election to to Mandelson and Blair. And then, you know, as the you know, the Iraq war happened and, you know, the, the debacle of that and the whole all the ways in which gradually Blair discredited himself, people people felt they wanted the party back. And in a sense, the victory of Jeremy Corbyn is really the long-term consequences of that reaction. There's a lot to talk about in the interim there. I've, I've covered this uh, quite extensively on my show. I've t- chatted with uh, Leo Panich about this, chatted with uh, Max Shanley, oh, yeah, yeah. nice young uh, labor left yes. activist. We, we talked all extensively about the democratization of the party yeah. implemented by Ed Miliband, which kind of uh, in a roundabout ironic sort of uh, <laughs> accidental fashion uh, enabled the rise of uh, democratic par- democracy inside of the Labour Party, which enabled the election of Jeremy Corbyn. And so here we are. We'll fast forward there. But you have an interesting anecdote from your piece in the 2017 Socialist Register, where you open up with a celebration of the Corbyn moment, but you're a little bit critical of the way some of the leading figures that are deemed to be responsible for that movement, h- how they are orienting to this new mass of, of people who are uh, electrified by that Corbin wave. Roll out that critique for us because I found it a little, I mean, initially unsettling, but also very compelling at the same time. That's really how you know an argument is good because it gets under your skin for right. before you can really kind of uh, address it. Yeah. Okay, well, I'm I, I'm not very narcissistic about my own writings, and I can't quite remember my this uh, an anecdote. <laughs> but I mean, I sure it was uh, John John Landsman was speaking. Oh, yes. Uh, uh, yes, momentum leader John's Lan- John Landsman sort of you, you by your estimation evoked a certain kind of old left posture with respect to his relationship to these new masses that he wanted to quote mobilize uh, the, the millions. Yes, yes. Yeah, no, I think I remember that now. It was a, it was a socialist register panel. And whether it's a slip of the tongue, but he talked very much about the new supporters of Corbyn, all these people who weren't members of the Labour Party but had come, you know, on board because they just saw suddenly that Corbyn was offering a voice in a way to the disenfranchised, to people who'd felt completely disenfranchised by politics, by the austerity programs of the Tory government, by privatisation. And Corbyn just gave a voice to that disaffection. And John Lansman talked about them as if they were the new electoral rank and file, the new electoral fodder, if you like, the new electoral army. And I think I reacted to that negatively because I felt learning again from Greece and from, you know, the limits of electoral politics, that really those people were were important, not simply as people who would mobilise the vote, though that did turn out to be important in 2017 in the general election when Corbyn did so well against all the predictions. But they, But at the same time, one of the ways in which they were successful, because they were rooted in communities and they were They were involved in not just getting people to vote, but in helping them build their own organisations. I mean, for example, today I've just been with a member of Momentum who's very much of that kind, a young woman from Ireland who supports Corbyn completely, you know, very excited. But, you know, she's her main energies is building up her tenants group and fighting a very exploitative and, I don't know how to put it, just very, very inadequate 
private landlord who's benefited from being given or sold very cheaply a whole estate. And there she is organising this group of working class people and organising their power. And it seems to me that any radical election, any radical, the, the election of any radical government, you know, it'll require people to feel they can take a risk. So merely voting won't be enough. They'll need to feel they've got some agency, they've got some sense that they can bring about change if they have the support of such a government. So I think I was probably a bit critical of a purely electoral approach to this amazing opportunity that Corbyn has led us to. And I think that's still an issue, you know, that um, the electoral the electoral habits of the Labour Party are so deeply ingrained and the calculations amongst so many of their leading officials, which is always, are we fine-tuning exactly whether we're meeting the the middle, the floating voter? You know, whereas Corbyn did so well in 2017 because he, he reached out to the people who weren't voting, to the disenfranchised, to the, the pissed off, you know, and he reached them and particularly young people. And that was his source of success. He brought them into politics rather than, you know, weakening his message to, to reach the floating voter and accept the existing numbers of people that abstained and, and didn't bother to vote. So he questioned the whole electoral arithmetic of elections in Britain. This brings to mind another uh, former guest of uh, this show, labor organizer and author Jane McAlevey, who makes a similar distinction, but a little different. And she she came on the show a year and a half ago, almost two now, to talk about her her most recent book, yeah. No Shortcuts. And she, she makes this distinction between advocacy, mobilizing, and then organizing. Advocacy being the weakest form of worker participation, mobilizing being this kind of middle ground where she, her version of mobilizing, she, she writes that it does bring a significant number of people into the fight, but they are A, already generally committed activists, and B, they are not sort of the, their experiences and their, their organic connections to the community are not being exploited in, in the way that they should. And what she calls deep organizing seems to be very parallel to what you're trying yes. to implement in a broader political yes. struggle. Um, so tell us a little bit about that, that kind of capacity and that deep organizing. And then perhaps by way of a, a cautionary tale or a nice comparative example, maybe talk about how that failed in Greece. Because you cite uh, Andreas Karitsis, uh, a colleague and a comrade of yours, who has written and talked quite extensively about those limitations uh, coming out of the Greek and the series of experiments in 2013 and beyond. Yes. No, no, I think um, Jane McAlevey's writing is, and work and organizing work, I mean, is brilliant. And, and she's talking from experience. And that's what makes her, her writing so convincing, because she's done the deep organizing. She's seen it work. She's also seen it fail, seen the difficulties. So I'd very much recommend, you know, reading her, her stuff in this context of electoral, of political organizing. So I mean, I think the deep organizing, it's varied. I mean, it goes on, as I was saying, from my experience today in Hackney, where I live. I mean, there's a lot going on in community associations of really deep organizing against exploitative landlords, and including challenging the, the council, too, and putting the council on the spot. And there's, there's, there's always been a lot of that. You know, fairly recently, there was in another part of East London, a group of single mothers called the E 
E15 or E17 women, mothers who who fought against the the demolition of their their building. You know, the, I mean, the, the a big struggle in London is over housing and property yeah, right. and you know land value. So it's a big issue, and it's where a lot of deep organising takes place in the unions too. It's varied in a way. The unions have been defeated in Britain, but they're defeated, but not, you know, not bowed. I mean, there's a lot of determination, particularly at a local level, a lot of, a lot of fights against privatisation in the public sector, against hospital closures. And those seem to me to be, and not just me, but many people in momentum in the Labour Party, it seems vital that we we spend our time supporting them. So my local Labour Party in, in Hackney, which is now led by the left, I mean, we a lot of our activities is supporting, for example, workers for Hackney's uh, Picture House, the Picture House chain of, of cinemas where workers are not, they're not allowed to join the union or their union isn't recognised. They're on very precarious wages. So, you know, we support there, we go on their picket lines, we give them support. So there's that sort of sense of that we're there as a party ready to support working people as they struggle, as well as to fight for their vote uh, when it comes to an election. So that deep organising is very important. And I think momentum, which is this very, unusual, well, it's unusual in British politics, it came about really through building on the success of the campaign to make Corbyn leader, because that movement came from not just people inside the Labour Party, but people inside all the movements that had been fighting Thatcher, fighting austerity. They, you know, when they saw Corbyn was, could be leader, they started to mobilise in that campaign. You know, young people who'd never been in the Labour Party, but who suddenly saw an opportunity and a voice, they got involved. And so they weren't interested in joining the Labour Party simply to to canvass and win votes. They were going to join the Labour Party in order to, to turn it into a body that could support those struggles and give those struggles a voice in local councils, in the local press, and then in Parliament. And so you have now a movement that is a bit on the cusp of, you know, it's not quite sure whether to go simply for elect, electoral politics or for movement building. But I think its kind of intuitions is that it's about both, because that's what Jeremy Corbyn is about. So it follows Jeremy Corbyn's lead in a way. Right, right. So there's this kind of inside-outside uh, approach to the state that you write, yes. that you write quite, uh, quite uh, explicitly about in your book here. I mean, we, 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 just a phrase that might help people we use the concept we use it at the glc being in and against the state yes, so yes, i love that in in the electoral system in the labor party but at the same time knowing that the state was not automatically on our side you know sometimes civil servants were very hostile sometimes parts of the state were taken over by corporate interests so we had to be building our own independent sources of power to challenge the state as well as to work within it. So that's a good phrase, in and against the state. Yes, I love that. I love that. Um, I, there's a number of, uh, I believe, uh, Leo Panich, former guest of the show. People will know him quite well. My audience uh, has a, a piece in uh, Red Pepper, if I'm not mistaken, called In and yeah. Against the State uh, recently. It's about 
talked a little bit about that. I love that phrase. I'd forgotten it. It's something that I think the U.S. left needs to become a lot more comfortable with because we have this very kind of false dichotomous uh, understanding of relations to the state. And, and when I hear you retell this story about how people in the movements just sort of organically, almost in a knee-jerk way, were drawn to this, this Corbin wave, I'm envious because I don't see the same automatic immediate connection to say the Bernie Sanders movement here in the, in the United States. I don't see the same kind of knee jerk orientation. And now that's not to say that people of all stripes are not very inspired and motivated by it. But for some reason, those tend to be the kind of just kind of the types of people who aren't overtly political. Well, I guess I guess you've got the Democratic Party. And although the Labour Party is not you know, radically more left than the Democratic Party. At least sure. it's got those links with the Labour movement. It's got a left heritage, a left part of it. So I think that that makes a big difference. It does. It does. So let's talk a little bit. Let's uh, let's hopefully try to build on this and, and let's take a lesson from from your book. Uh, the, the way that you formulate this, I think, is, is so interesting. Um, the way that you, you, you're forcing us to rethink about the limitations of of what is in you know in essence is a social democratic approach now you know we we would like to build a socialism a socialist movement that goes beyond social democracy but then the question is how do you do that um and i think you know you talk about radically transforming the way we go about this project from the from the bottom up and and you emphasize producing a new politics of knowledge which really links into kind of uh, a traditional notions of authority and capacity and who counts in politics and how people are made to matter or how people might be erased in various kind of uh, processes that are otherwise ideologically be painted as democratic, perhaps not so democratic after all. So tell us a little bit about your approach, this kind of new politics of knowledge that you talk about in your latest book, A New Politics from the Left. So, I mean, in some ways, I feel this is where Corbyn and the the sort of new politics goes a bit beyond social democracy because social democracy has a presumption that change will come through the state, through parliament. And it also has the presumption that change is about redistribution of the wealth gained in the economy through capitalism. So it's not really about radical transformation of the economy. It's about redistributing the gains of the capitalist economy towards the social welfare of the mass of people. And I think what Corbyn's about and what, well, and sorry, just, and then what follows from that too is a kind of, in some ways, a, a paternalistic attitude to the people. So the people are seeing as, as welfare recipients, as people who have needs that need to be met, but not in a way actively involved in, in, in determining those needs. So a leading social democrat, Beatrice Webb of the Fabians, and one of the, the most influential people designing the welfare state and designing the Labour Party even, it's writing its constitution with her husband, Sidney. She said in her very vivid diary, she said, the ordinary person, the average central man, she put it, can describe his problems, and presumably this applied to women too, can describe his problems but not prescribe the solutions. Hence, we need to bring on the experts, i.e. people like her and the Fabians. And I think that flows from the acceptance of the capitalist economy as 
the source of wealth. Because once you start seeing the people as producers, not just as recipients of welfare, then you know that leads to or requires a completely different understanding of knowledge and of people's capacity. So you're then you then need to treat people as knowledgeable citizens who who or whose knowledge is crucial to the to the economy. Um, you know, if you think about it, engineering, railways, or you know, nursing, every sphere of the economy depends on the skills and capacities of ordinary people. And if you had a party that was based on organizing those skills, you'd have a very much more transformative party. And so I think, in a way, Corbyn is appealing to that capacity. I mean, he himself says very clearly, and I think I quote him in the book, is, you know, that he doesn't defer to people with higher education and, on the other hand, has no contempt for those who don't have it. You know, that some of his, he talks about his, a close friend of his who was a street sweeper who was, lived in an incredibly ecological way because he really understood climate change. Um, and and he, he ends up by saying, so wisdom lies in the streets. So he's trying to build a politics in which, you know, he's not presenting himself or the civil servants as the experts. He's looking to ordinary working class people as providing the knowledge, not denying you need other kinds of knowledge as well as the practical or tacit sometimes knowledge of working people. You need different kinds of knowledge. But that knowledge that lies in the Labour Party itself and in the trade union movement is fundamental, but it's fundamental to changing the economy as well as to changing the state. And it does mean a very a very different kind of politics that doesn't see winning elections as the only. It sees it as, nece- as necessary. We see it as necessary, but not sufficient to changing society. Yeah, absolutely. I think we're getting into the real kind of fundamental piece of the book. And so you you write about uh, this kind of new politics of knowledge as really being uh, the kind of foundational, fundamental, you know, aspect of of what it means to do politics and organize uh, a party differently than the way that socialist politics have been uh, performed in the past. And just, you know, as a way of sort of uh, rewinding for just a moment, I really like the way you open this is that you know the experience that we that we just discussed in the beginning of the show here about the kind of this disorientation experience in the 1980s was uh, the product of of the collapse of kind of this old left style top down way of doing things that kind of uh, really lost it. well you know i mean let's be honest you know have, having read uh, ralph miliband's uh, history of the of the, uh, the labor party it's important to acknowledge the fact that it Never really was a socialist party to begin with, was it? So let's not let's not let's not put up a, a, a romanticized notion of a previously democratic and uh, socialist oriented labor party in the early 1900s, which, which then devolved into a kind of social democratic, technocratic, uh, bureaucratic uh, institution because it was always oriented in that direction. But that's just to say that the old left had been totally discredited and, and it had lost its way. And the new left that emerged in the wake of 1968, which was renouncing this kind of traditional authority and was thinking more critically and seriously about uh, these kind of transformational capacities, they hadn't really kind of gotten their footing yet. And, and, and also they they'd really collapsed under a lot of contradictions because, you know, th- this book, uh, to its credit, is is very optimistic. But I could imagine a much more pessimistic book as well, where you talk a lot about how that new left learned to shed 
some of the more uh, counterproductive aspects of of its of its anti authority anti authoritarian sort of stance, which which tend towards a more kind of individualist approach to politics and culture and life, which which also end up mapping on to this kind of neoliberalized uh, uh, world that we live in today. Um, so I've thrown a lot out there. Well, I mean, th- that's that's the kind of world that sort of emerges in this new politics of knowledge. Talk a little bit about that synthesis for us. Well, yes. I mean, I suppose, well, in the book, I do contrast the idea of sharing knowledge, of sharing practical knowledge and tacit knowledge with the idea that was underpinning the market and you could say maybe underpinning some of the the culture of 68, which was very individual about creativity as a purely individual act. But I suppose my experience was very shaped by the women's movement, which is, which was both about the the realization of us as individuals. We were undoubtedly fighting for ourselves, but we recognized that we were up against structures, structures of oppression, which uh, kind of required us to create our own collective capacity, our own collective power. So, social organizing and collective power, and therefore some importance of democracy and and sharing of knowledge and exchange and deliberation and argument became key to the the project of building a new kind of power power as transformative capacity so i think that the 68 sort of movements they did go in two directions they they were ambiguous and there's a very good book by um chapello and boltansky that describes this uh, that listeners might be familiar with, but I think that the, if you like, the social side of '68, you know, has 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 been reproduced in some of the social movements and and also in the ideas of the the new left, which you know still have a a resonance. You know, the Fat Red Pepper is quite a popular magazine. Socialist Register is quite popular. Jacobin's popular. You know, the the ideas of the new left are are openly debated they're part of our political culture and also the market the market kind of idea of haphazard sort of coordination of the knowledge of individuals has proved so disastrous that you do need some kind of planning some kind of coordination even though you know it isn't it isn't about predictability about certainty it requires constant experiment constant debate and argument so we have to find new forms of 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 sharing knowledge of of dealing with of of i don't know structures of debate of, of political of policy formation that is not all about you know developing a program that is then imposed from above but always has experiment and experience built into its processes Right, right. Well said. That book that you referred to there, I know my listeners will be asking in the comments, so I want to just go ahead and get that out of the way. That's The New Spirit of Capitalism by Luke Boltanski yeah. and Eva Chappello. That there's actually a new edition of that coming out oh, really? uh, from Verso. Um, I, I suppose it's updated. Uh, it's uh, it's just it's just been re- uh, released uh, just last year, and so I want to get that. I want to talk about that on the show because there's a lot of really interesting things here. But needless to say, I think your book uh, takes the right sort of uh, bends the stick in the right direction towards a, a kind of uh, op- the, focusing on the optimistic uh, kind of collectivist 
uh, aspects of that sort of counterculture, right? That you, you point to in the women's movement. It's uh, that kind of the collective approach must have been unavoidable because you're all going against a similar kind of structures, um, which is, that's really fascinating. Yes. I mean, I don't want to, the women's movement was full of problems. So, I mean, it's not that collectivism is easy. It's, it's, um, it's difficult. And, and there are a lot of, there are lots of problems about getting the right ways of organizing debates so that, that, there isn't division and fractures, and we haven't. So I wouldn't say we'd resolve that, but we're learning all the time. And there needs to be, I suppose, a lot of transparency and self-reflection. So we need spaces of debate and argument. There needs to be some, you know, value valuing of argument. I mean, there's a te- there was a tendency under uh, Tony Blair to see argument and debate as being a problem, and I think that's that is quite a a sort of cultural legacy of um, of Fordism, you know, the idea that people things need to be centralised, fully coordinated, you know, the the assembly line with all its certainty, its elimination of of idiosyncrasies and moments of creativity, you know. So that there's a kind of been a cultural denigration of debate and argument that we're now trying to recover from by creating forms of, of organization that are both fed by debate and argument and ideas, but also have the ability to take decisions, be decisive, be be united. So it's trying to overcome that the tension between those two moments in in the development of an organization, you know, unity and and division. And I mean it's almost built into any creative process. If you talk to designers or artists, they always say, well there are, there's a period of divergence you know when you're open to everything you're experimenting you're you're exploring different avenues and then there comes a moment of convergence where you have to focus draw on all your different sources and experiences and 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 produce something people should pick up this book because there's just no way we can get through all of the the real historical uh, examples no. of of this approach there's no way we can get through all of those in the show unfortunately and the, the detail you know the devil is in the details here as well as how this actually how these came about and how this tacit knowledge was able to at least for a time win the day and and be very decisive and enabling a kind of a cooperative democratic administration both public administration of of state functions as well as administration of semi-public-private, uh, you know, cooperative uh, firms as well. But people should definitely pick up this book, A New Politics from the Left. It's out from Polity Press last year. It's really rich with examples. And I think it would be very, uh, you, it's impossible to go through these examples. And if you yourself are an organizer, you have your hands in any political uh, movement, it's impossible not to sort of gain insights and ideas for how you yourself might wage your battles more effectively, uh, whether you're dealing with, you know, housing justice, ecological crisis, you know, labor, racial, gender, uh, sexual oppression, all of these things are going to be, um, you're going to find a lot of nuggets in here. But um, And also it's quite, I just, just to finish the plug, it's quite short. I think you could read it over a, a weekend, maybe even an evening. And it's not, it's quite oh, absolutely. cheap too, I think. Absolutely. I, yeah, Polity did a great job of making this very uh, affordable to folks. And so I'll put a link in the show notes uh, here. Um, and uh, doing a book club here on uh, Dead Pundit Society with some of our some of our uh, patrons. And, and perhaps we'll, we'll pick this up in the future and do a oh, book club. Oh, that would club, be great. It would be really, I think, inspiring and interesting to, 
to see a number of people from various organizing and, and sort of intellectual circles coming together to discuss what this means to them and their work. So aside from those very useful and fruitful examples, let's just wrap up this way. And again, I'm, I'm putting quite a lot on your plate. I like to end with a, a big question, a big kind of strategic uh, you know, question. It's got some prognostication involved, which is always doomed to be uh, overcome by events. But in any case, the real crucial kind of theoretical strategic macro level distinction that you raise here is this distinction between power over and power as transformative capacity or function. And the real, I think what you're really talking about here is this kind of, uh, the way in which these need to stand together and work together in kind of this dialectical uh, relationship, wherein power over is this, uh, is this kind of state authority, this capacity that's developed in the state and state institutions. And then power as transformative capacity is this kind of more popular wielding and direction at, directioning of, of tacit knowledge. How, you know, let's, let's use today's Labor Party as an example. Give us, uh, let's, let's conclude here with some direction. It, what are some of the sort of big picture prescriptive ways you would like to see this play out in the way that the, the Labor Party is organizing for a very likely Corbyn, Corbyn government in the next uh, year or, or so? Well, obviously, um, at the moment, we're very dominated by Brexit, which is deeply depressing and paralyzing. And I suppose where, what I'd like to see there is much more emphasis on building a movement across Europe an anti, for an anti-austerity Europe. And I mean, Corbyn has, meant, has talked about an anti-austerity Europe, but I don't think enough has been done to, to connect with the admittedly not very strong, but still, you know, existing left in Europe. I mean, I think maybe it's strongest in cities, cities like Barcelona, Madrid, Naples. You know, there's a lot of transformative capacity being built, often with the support of left alliances in in power, in office. And I think that, um, in a way, if we're to build any sort of vision of another Europe beyond the EU and beyond the Tory Brexit, because for me, the Brexit that's emerging is very much a, a free market, pro-American kind of Tory right-wing Brexit. And the only way we can counter that is by developing links at, a, at the level of movements and struggles and the building of, of transformative capacity across Europe. That's one maybe framing thing that, that I think is important in the present situation. But beyond Brexit, I think, you know, one of the key things that's happening is that um, John McDonnell, particularly, you know, the economic minister, uh, shadow minister who works very closely with Jeremy Corbyn, he's built on the Labour manifesto of 2017, which was immensely popular. And one reason it was popular was because it, it committed a future Labour government to bring railways, water, energy, all the industry, the post, postal um, system, all the infrastructure that had been privatised by Thatcher, including elements of the NHS. He, the, the, this manifesto was really committed and very, very um, strongly so to bringing that back into public ownership. And now John McDonnell has said very clearly and very strongly, this isn't going to be public ownership of the old kind, you know, that was very much 
the old bosses of the private companies running the, the public companies so that very little changed. He's saying that the new systems of administration and management must be based on on workers in those companies, communities that are affected by the decisions of those companies, and and really, in effect, the people that know that have the practical knowledge. You know, he he uses that stress on practical knowledge of the front line, and I think how we prepare for that now. You know, it's not something just to expect. John McDonald to implement. It has to be something that the unions, communities, activists, you know, themselves, we prepare the alternatives that then um, a Labour government can support. So we've got a lot of work to do in addition to building up the campaign for a Labour victory. So we're in a difficult moment just now with Brexit, but we've got to think beyond our little island and build links across Europe and at the same time particularly at the level of cities, but not just also at the level of, of left political movements and parties and unions. But also we've got to work, you know, at a grassroots level to prepare the kind of creative um, power that can really make or ensure that a, a Corbyn-led government really changes society. That's right. Well said. I think one of the things, one of the needles that we try to thread on this podcast with all of our guests, and you are certainly leading the way here, is the way in which we need we need to be very optimistic about how this this kind of drive to develop new policies has kind of taken off. I mean, everywhere, be it the UK, be it in Europe, be it in the United States, there are people thinking very creative about new policies, whether it's something like a Green New Deal, whether it's, uh, you know, other types of policies. But, you know, I think it's easy to fall uh, prey to this illusion that just sort of if you build it, they will come kind of mentality. If you sort of craft the policy that the policy in and of itself uh, will convince enough people and we'll be able to then therefore implement it and, and be on our way to socialism. But I think, you know, your 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 emphasis here is is really crucial. And it's not just enough to, d- to develop the technical capacity, but it's the implementation, the building, the capacities of of the workers and the people uh, with the everyday sort of tasks and, and tacit knowledge uh, that really makes this possible. So thanks so much for joining us on Dead Pundit Society. Everybody should check out Red Pepper Magazine. I'll, I'll definitely include a link to that in the show notes and uh, come back and chat with us to talk more about this in the future. Hillary Wainwright, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Adam. I really enjoyed it. <laughs>